You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. As a married adult, there is a radical difference between life without children and life with children. Those of you who are parents, have you noticed that? One day you do not have any children, and then the next day, nine months later, you have one. And between life without children and life with children, there is this nine-month period of time in between that can only be called a transitional stage where you are transitioning between life without children and life with children. And that transitional stage is unique completely unto itself, and it has certain things in common with both childless marriage and children with marriage. Because during that nine-month period of time, you start to get used to the idea of thinking in terms of having a child, but you don't really have a child yet. And, and suddenly, out of thin air, come all of these baby things, toys and soothers and bottles and diapers. Nobody's using them. Nobody can use them. But they kind of hang around and clutter up your house nonetheless. And that transition time is for you to get used to having all of those baby things. And then as the nine months progresses onward and you kind of draw to the end of that transition stage, then things begin to really kind of start to change. Mom gets used to the idea of having a baby, and she's looking forward to using all of that baby stuff that's been accumulating around your house for the last nine months. Friends, the early church in the book of Acts experienced what can only be described as a transition phase. It was a transition period between the Old Covenant with the law the sacrifices, the feasts, the festivals, the ceremonial rituals, the cleansing rituals, the dietary laws, and the new covenant where all of that was no more. The difference between the old covenant and the new covenant was the difference between night and day completely. And those who had lived under and grown up under the old covenant didn't find transitioning to this new way of doing things all that easy. We see some odd things that come up in the book of Acts. And we've watched these come up throughout the book of Acts as we've gone through them. Maybe you've noticed them. If if you don't understand the transitional nature of those first 30, 40, maybe 50 years of of the church, then there are things in the book of Acts that are going to strike you as odd. You will not be able to understand them. And you're not going to have a clue of of ever hoping to understand them. Like Acts chapter 4, for instance. Right after Pentecost, the Apostle Peter and John, they go into the temple at the hour of prayer. What are the apostles of the Christian church doing going into the temple at the hour of prayer? I thought this was the church now. What are you doing observing hours of prayer in the temple? Well, that's what they had always done. That was the Jewish thing to do. You wanted to worship as a Jew, you went into the temple at the hour of prayer to worship there. It seems odd to us because we look at it and we say, 
in the church, we're the temple made without hands, a living building in which the Spirit of God operates. Why were the apostles doing these very Jewish things early on in the church? Acts chapter 8, we see some other odd things with the Samaritans when they got saved. They got saved, they got baptized, no Spirit. Until the apostles from Jerusalem came down, laid hands on the Samaritans, identified themselves with the Samaritans and the Samaritans with the Christians, then they received the Spirit. That's a very odd thing. Not normative, didn't happen any other time in the book of Acts. A very unique thing. It's part of this transition. Acts chapter 10 and 11. The apostle Peter caught in transition. Remember how difficult it was for him to walk through a Gentile door? The Lord had to set him aside on a rooftop and give him a vision and specific instruction. Then he had to prepare Cornelius and then he had to speak to Peter and say, there's two men outside by the gate. You and your men go with them. Not asking any questions. Peter had to get instruction about dietary laws and how they applied and Gentiles and how Jews are supposed to relate to Gentiles. All of that in Acts chapter 11. And Peter wasn't unique. The other apostles in Acts chapter 11, when Peter got back to Jerusalem, what they do? They called him on the carpet. You were eating with a Gentile. Explain yourself. So Peter did. Acts chapter 15. They wrestled through this whole issue of circumcision. How does the Old Testament requirement of circumcision and the law regarding circumcision relate to Gentiles now in this new covenant era? Acts chapter 18. Paul taking a Nazarite vow. You see all these odd things that are happening in the book of Acts? Paul takes a Nazarite vow. A Jewish Christian expressing his gratitude and his thankfulness in a very Jewish way, very traditional, very cultural, very understandable. And then we run into a couple of other unique things that are sort of difficult to understand unless we keep in mind that we're talking about a transition period. Let me go back to the parenting illustration for just a second. When do you become a parent? When the baby's born? Or is it before then? It's nine months before then, right? Life begins at conception. You become a parent at the moment of conception. When do you find out you're a parent? Four or five weeks. You wake up. You're throwing up. Sometimes your wife throws up too. Both of you throw up together. After four or five weeks, suddenly you find out that things are different. And even though you don't know all of the ramifications of what the conception means until after four or five weeks, then you find out But you still don't understand all that that reality is about to bring with it, do you? No, you can kind of start thinking through and you know a little bit about what to expect. But after nine months, things change dramatically. You've been a parent for nine months, but now all of a sudden it's kind of real. Things have taken on a new form, a new... You can see what you could never see before. It was always in your mind's eye. Now you've realized it. And even though you've been a parent for nine months, and even though now you're holding a baby in your hands you still don't understand all of the ramifications that that new reality brings into your life. All of the changes that it brings. All of the responsibilities that it brings. Life has changed, but oh, you have no idea how much. Still have yet to understand that. Now, I've been a parent for nine years. This is just life. I'm no longer in a transition period. I've been a parent for nine years. I can't imagine not being a parent. It's, it's better this way, I think. I, I have a hard time remembering what life was like without kids. I really do. Because this is my life. This is reality now. It is the way it is. And I accept it as reality, and this is normal for me. But it wasn't always like that. For a while, there was a transition between life without kids and life with kids. Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, was 
conception, if you will, was the beginning of something. And the apostles, even though apostles and even having learned from Jesus, did not understand all of the ramifications that that new reality would bring to bear upon them and the nation of Israel. They didn't understand that. When we get to Acts chapter 18, there's a few odd things that happen there at the end of 18, the beginning of chapter 19. And I want you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 18. You should have it open to verse 23. We're beginning this morning Paul's third missionary journey. He's done two so far, taking in total about four years with the breaks between the beginning of the first and the end of the second. He's had about a four-year time period there. In Acts chapter 18, Paul meets, sorry, not Paul, Priscilla and Aquila meet a man named Apollos. Some odd things that go on with Apollos. Acts chapter 19, the first seven verses, Paul runs into some Disciples of John the Baptist who haven't even heard of the Holy Spirit yet. That's kind of a unique little group of people there. And then there's a third encounter later in Acts chapter 19 with those Jewish exorcists, the sons of Sceva. And that is sort of an interesting thing in and of itself. And as we go through these three encounters over the course of the next several weeks, I want you to keep in mind transition. We're still in that period of time where you have people who have grown up under the old covenant with the old way of looking forward to the Messiah and His ministry. Now they're in the new covenant reality, the church, and the old covenant has passed away. It's been superseded and replaced with a new covenant. Something new is here. And so you have all of these sort of stragglers, if you will, that the apostles encounter. All of these unique things that are going on. Acts chapter 18, beginning at verse 23. Read it with me. And having spent some time there, he, that is Paul, passed successively through the Galatian region and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus, and he was mighty in the Scriptures. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. And he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wanted to go across to Achaia, the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he had arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the Scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Let's begin in verse 23. This is the beginning of Paul's third missionary journey. It says that he spent some time there that is Antioch. You remember he had sailed to Caesarea, went to Jerusalem to greet the church. Then he went up to or went down to Antioch, and he stayed there some time, Luke says. Paul went home. You might think of Antioch sort of as Paul's home church. That's where he began his first missionary journey. He was a pastor there before he went on his first missionary journey, teaching and preaching in the church in Antioch. Then after his first missionary journey, he went back to Antioch, spent some time there before going to Jerusalem for a short period to hammer out that issue of circumcision. And then he went back to Antioch and spent quite a bit of time there. And then he said to Barnabas in Acts chapter 15, let's go again. Let's go back and visit the churches where he preached the Word the first time. So this is sort of Paul's sending and receiving church. They've sent him out. He goes from Antioch. But after you've been gone from the church in Antioch for that long a period of time, can you really still call it your home church? Yeah, you can in a sense. It was home for Paul as close as home gets. Antioch was a city with familiar leadership, a familiar church, a familiar body of believers, people he had taught and led to the Lord and discipled, people who supported him and prayed for him. 
So Paul could go back to Antioch and sit back and rest a little bit, recuperate, get ready for the next trip. That's what Antioch was to him. But did Paul have a home? Paul have a home? You think he went back to Antioch and got the key out from underneath the mat and opened it up and dusted out the cobwebs and threw out the food that had spoiled and got his dog from the kennel and man, it feels good to sleep in my own bed again. Sort through his mail. Think that's what Paul did? I don't think that's what Paul did. You know where Paul's base of operations is now? The entire empire. There's a man without a home. When Paul purposed to preach Christ where Christ had never been preached before, Paul knew that that meant the loss of all things. And he was fine with that. Because Paul knew that he would spend his entire life spending and being spent for the sake of the gospel and for Christ. And so when he goes back to Antioch, he is still a man without a home. It's not going to be long before he takes off again, which he does. Verse 23 says that after some time there, how much time? I, I don't know. Let me give you a little educated speculation or educated conjecture. If Paul sailed from Corinth to Caesarea and to Jerusalem in the spring of 52 A.D., which is likely that's when he did it, probably wanting to be in Jerusalem for one of the early feasts, Passover or Pentecost, wanting to be back in Jerusalem then, in verse 22, the shipping lanes would have just opened up in the spring. The ships could sail again. He probably left for Jerusalem. Having spent some time in Antioch, he likely leaves either in the fall of 53 A.D. or, sorry, in the fall of 52 A.D. or the spring of 53 A.D. He's not going to travel land through the Cilician Gates, the Taurus Mountains in winter. So he either leaves before winter or he leaves after winter. So he's right on the heels. Luke doesn't say he spent quite a bit of time there or a lot of time or many days. He spent some time. Probably a few months, and Paul decides he's going to leave again. Let me point out something here real quick. Only one of Paul's three missionary journeys was specifically directed by the Lord. Acts chapter 13. The Spirit said to them in Acts chapter 13, Set apart for me Paul and Barnabas for the work to which I've called them. There's no divine direction, no supernatural guidance, no prophetic utterance, no word from the Lord for the other two missionary journeys. At least it's not recorded. Acts chapter 15, Paul said, let's go visit the brethren. It seemed like a good idea to them. And so they did it. Here he spent some time in Antioch, and it just says Paul left. Did he receive a message from God? I don't think he did. The Spirit told him in Acts 13, go out. In Acts 18, he just leaves. Now hold on to your hats as you read the end of verse 23. It says he passed successively through the Galatian region and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. You just covered 1,500 miles in one breath. And what does Luke tell us about that? Nothing. Nothing. 1,500 miles. Derby, Lystra, Timothy's hometowns, Iconium, Antioch, where they first, first preached the gospel, that whole region that had fallen under the, the curse of the Judaizers and started going back into circumcision, those churches which were on the brink of apostatizing from the faith before they received Paul's letter, before the second missionary journey when Paul came back with the letter from James, to tell them what the decision was about circumcision. He covers all of that territory, 1,500 miles, and Luke doesn't tell us a thing about it. How many acts of heroism or miracles do we not know about because Luke covered 1,500 miles in a breath? I think he's in a hurry to get us to Ephesus, which he does in verse 9, chapter 19, verse 1. You notice that? It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus. So verses 24 through 28 take place. While Paul is on this journey, 
probably many weeks, a few months, going through the upper country, and then he comes back down all by land, and he lands at Ephesus. And the map is on the back of your bulletin insert. At least I hope it is this time. Your map is on the back of your bulletin insert, and you could cover the route yourself and see where Paul passed. Verses 24 through 28, while Paul is traveling, Aquila and Priscilla are in Ephesus where Paul left them, and they're in the synagogue one day, and in walks this unique man named Apollos. Read verse 24. He was a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man came to Ephesus. Now, Apollos illustrates for us three qualities that are essential for a good or effective follower of Christ. And these are the three things that I want you to notice about Apollos. In verse 24, it says he was a Jew. His name was Apollos, and he was an Alexandrian by birth. He was from the city of Alexandria in Egypt. It was the second largest city in the Roman Empire. It was the second city of rank. It had a massive Jewish population in the city of Alexandria. It was said by one ancient author, as he described a synagogue service, that in the middle of the synagogue the leader of the synagogue or one of the helpers in the synagogue would have to stand up on a podium and wave the flags when the bells were rung because the synagogue was so massive that all of the Jews couldn't hear when the bells were rung for prayer. So they had to wave a flag so that the people in the back could see it. A massive Jewish population in Alexandria. This is where Apollos was born. Alexandria was a city that was also known for its learning. It had universities. It was a very intellectual city, much like Athens in the sense of being top-notch in their education, their philosophy. Apollos got a very good education where he grew up. How do I know that? Because verse 24 and 25 says that he was mighty in the Scriptures. He was a very learned man. Luke describes him as eloquent. That word is only used once in the New Testament right here, and it means one of two things. It either means he was a man of words, or it means he was a man of ideas. It can be used to refer to either one. Either he was very articulate and very gifted in his natural abilities to communicate, or a very intellectual man, likely both. He was mighty in the Scriptures, and he was eloquent. He had intellect. He had ability. Look at verse 26. It says, he was also fervent in spirit. He was fervent in spirit, and he was speaking... Sorry, verse 25. says that he was fervent in spirit, speaking and teaching accurately, the things concerning Jesus. So here, do you see the picture that Luke is painting of Apollos? He's very learned, very able, and very passionate. Now that's a powerful package, isn't it? Knowledge, ability, and passion. All three of those things have to be present in order to communicate effectively God's truth, to teach or to preach or to, or to communicate the gospel. You have to have accurate knowledge. You have to have uh, ability, and you have to have passion. You see, if you don't have the knowledge, if you don't understand what it is that you're going to communicate, then you're just eloquently, passionately communicating error. You don't want that. And if you don't have the ability, then you may have all of the intellect and all of the knowledge and all of the passion or the zeal to go with it, so you really want to communicate things, but you can't do every time you open your mouth, you just can't, can't put together a sermon or a lesson or a lecture or communicate the gospel because you just don't have the ability to communicate those things. Apollos had the intellect, he had the ability, and folks, who wants to listen to somebody who has the intellect and has the ability to talk but has no passion about what they say? Who wants to listen to that? Give me passion. He had intellect, he had ability, and he had passion. Now, verse 25 raises some interesting questions because it says that he was 
teaching and preaching the things concerning Jesus accurately. But yet we know that it wasn't completely accurate because verse 26 goes on to say that Priscilla and Aquila discerned something in Apollos and they brought him aside privately and instructed him in the way more accurately. So he was accurate to a point, but there was obviously something lacking that Priscilla and Aquila were able to see, and so they brought him aside privately to instruct him. And verse 25 says that he was only acquainted with the baptism of John. So here's the question. Did Apollos understand enough about the life and the ministry of Jesus to be saved? Did he understand enough about the life and the ministry of Jesus to be saved? It says that he was instructed in the way of the Lord. It says that he was teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, but he was only acquainted with the baptism of John. Well, you say he must have been saved because it says he was instructed in the things of the, in the way of the Lord. Well, the way of the Lord is just an Old Testament phrase that refers to the way of wisdom or the path of righteousness or ethical moral conduct that God required of His people. That was the way of the Lord, the path that you walk in, ethically, morally, and wisely speaking. That's the way of the Lord. seems to indicate Apollos had a tremendous instruction and understanding of the Old Testament, the way of the Lord in the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophets. And he was saying things about Jesus that were accurate. In other words, he had a, a good knowledge of the Scriptures but he was only acquainted with the baptism of John. What's the baptism of John? Well, when did John the Baptist's ministry end? During the life of Jesus. Before Jesus' death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, the birth of the church, and the coming of the Spirit of God, and all of this worldwide ministry activity. Apparently, Apollos had run into some disciples of John the Baptist, maybe the ones similar to the ones we're going to see in Acts chapter 19, And he had heard about this Messiah, this Jesus, and he was acquainted with John's baptism. That is a baptism, not Christian baptism, but a baptism of repentance. Because John the Baptist came alongside and said, this is the one who is the Lamb of God. And I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. There's one coming after me who is greater than me. He is the one who you are to look to. And when he saw Jesus, he said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And John just said, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness to prepare the way for Him. So what did John do? He looked forward to prepare for the Messiah. And these Apollos obviously understood that there was this fulfillment to John's ministry, which was Jesus. But he was only acquainted with John's baptism. That is a preparation for the Messiah. So everything that he was saying about Jesus was good as far as it went, but it appears to me at least that Apollos was completely unfamiliar with the other half of the story. That is Jesus' death, His burial, and His resurrection, and the coming of the Holy Spirit and the church. Because John's baptism only went to prepare and to point to the Messiah. So he was unfamiliar with the Gospel, so to speak. It doesn't seem to me that Apollos is saved. He's teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, though. I want you to notice a couple things about Apollos in this first point that he had a good knowledge of Scripture. A good knowledge of Scripture. Friends, your knowledge of Scripture doesn't save you. You see what Apollos was? This guy was an intellect. Was Paul an intellect before he got saved? Oh man, 
it was hard to find somebody on the level of Saul of Tarsus, intellectually, trained by Gamaliel. But was he saved by his knowledge? Could you find anybody who had an Old Testament understanding like Paul did before he got saved? His knowledge didn't save him. You may know the Bible forward and backwards and be able to sweep the board in a Bible trivia game, but could be a complete stranger to grace because you've never trusted Christ. You know the answers. Intellectually, you know what's true. Intellectually, you can recite the verses and recite the answers, but you've never reached out and apprehended saving grace. Apollos was a man who had a great understanding of the Old Testament Scriptures. He knew them. And he knew how they prepared the way and how they portrayed the life of Jesus as far as it went, but he wasn't saved. Parents, never mistake your children's ability to give you biblical facts and to recite biblical texts and to answer biblical questions with saving grace. Because you may know all of that and still be lost because your knowledge and your intellect doesn't save you. And I've run into people who can recite chapter and verse, answers to questions, verse upon verse after upon verse, and they know the truth, but they've never been born again. They've never been regenerated. Never think that your knowledge saves you. And second, I want you to notice the, the importance of doctrinal accuracy. You and I live in a day and age when people tell us, you know, doctrine divides, doctrine doesn't matter, it doesn't matter what you believe about this, that, and the other thing, let's just not talk about doctrine. It's not good for churches to have doctrinal statements or to emphasize doctrine in their preaching and their teaching. Hogwash. What if Priscilla and Aquila had thought that way? They would have seen Apollos come in and he's talking about Jesus and hey, he's our brother. Yeah, he's got some things wrong about his theology and his thinking about Jesus, but he, he's just, he's in Jesus and we're in Jesus and let's all just get together and let's not correct him, let's not divide over it. And they said, no, there's something lacking in his understanding. You need to take him aside privately and straighten this guy out. Listen, folks, all of you have a doctrinal position. All of you have doctrine. The only question is whether or not our doctrine is biblical or not. Because all of us believe certain things about everything. So the question is, is what we're believing biblical? Is it true to Scripture? Priscilla and Aquila were able to see in Apollos that something was amiss. And they said, doctrine is important. And so they pulled him aside privately and corrected him. First thing Apollos illustrates for us is that a, a good disciple of Christ must have an accurate knowledge of Scripture. Second, he's got to have a humble heart. Look at verse 26. This, I think, is one of the most phenomenal things about Apollos. He began to speak out boldly in the synagogue, but Priscilla and Aquila heard him. They took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Having listened to Paul for 18 months in Corinth, having followed Paul and heard his preaching and his teaching, Priscilla and Aquila, these humble little tent makers, serving in this little upstart church in Ephesus, ministering there the Scriptures to the Jews, they heard Apollos talk and they said, what he says about Jesus is accurate as far as it goes. But there's obviously this massive hole in his thinking regarding the person of Jesus. And so they take him aside privately. Always a good idea. They didn't raise their hand and debate him in the synagogue. They didn't correct him publicly. They didn't rebuke him in front of everybody. They just, hey, why don't you come over for dinner? We'd love to get to know you. We know a guy that you would probably love to get to know. He's a great intellect and a great speaker as well. Come into our place and we'll tell you about him. They take him aside privately. Now, Apollos, what you're saying is really good. But here's what you need to understand. Here's where it's lacking. 
And they basically took the things that they had learned from Paul and taught them to Apollos. They taught him the way of God more accurately. Now here's why Apollos is a humble man. He had a humble heart. Here is this man from Alexandria. Phenomenal intellect. An eloquent man. Very able. Fervent in spirit. Obviously a lot of natural ability because he could go into the synagogue and he would speak out boldly and proclaim this Jesus that John had preached about. And how this Jesus in his life and his ministry had fulfilled all of the Old Testament prophets. And here he comes into the home of a couple of tent makers and he receives instruction from them. That's humility. That's a teachable spirit. Not only did he receive instruction from tent makers, but from a woman. Now listen folks, I say that not because I'm a sexist, I'm not. But because of how women were viewed in that culture. Like cattle. They were viewed as nothing. They had no standing, no rights, no status, nothing. And it says that Priscilla and Aquila taught him. Apollos had a humble heart. He was willing to sit down and learn from people who were less gifted than he was, less knowledgeable than he was, less able than he was, and he received instruction from them. He had a knowledge of Scripture, and he had a humble heart. Don't ever get to the point where you think you've learned everything you have to learn. And I no longer have to read, and I no longer have to study. And there's nothing anybody else can ever tell me. I can never be instructed in anything. Never get to that point. Because you've lost your teachability. Apollos was knowledgeable, and Apollos was teachable. Third thing I want you to notice about Apollos is his willingness to serve. Look at verse 27. He wanted to go across to Achaia, and the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. He decides that he wants to go to Corinth. <clears throat> now perhaps <clears throat> perhaps he had heard about the church in Corinth and some of their potential problems and some issues that they were struggling with from Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus. Because remember, Priscilla and Aquila had been in Corinth for 18 months. And now they're working with Apollos, and Apollos says, I want to go across to Achaia, and he wants to go to Corinth. And it's to Corinth that he goes. You say, how do you know that? Because the, the text just says he went to Achaia. Look at chapter 19, verse 1. It happened the while Apollos was at Corinth. And Apollos is mentioned in Paul's Corinthian letters, which we'll get to in just a second. So he wants to go to Corinth, having heard about the church there. He wants to lend his gift, his abilities, his talent, his knowledge, something to that church. And he decides to go over there. So Priscilla and Aquila and the other brethren write him a letter of condemnation. Condemnation. Commendation. A letter of commendation, which was done all the time in those days. This man comes from us. Receive him. He's sound in doctrine, sound in the faith. He'll be a blessing to you. Sort of a little greeting. And they would send that letter with Apollos on his papers, his credentials. He'd show up in the church and say, Oh, Priscilla and Aquila, we know them. You know them? Yeah, we, I met them at Ephesus. Great, come on in. And he came in. They wrote him a letter, verse 27 says, And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. Do you see that at the end of verse 27? He greatly helped those who had believed through grace. Now, the Greek is a little bit different than the English. It can be translated one of two ways. Let me give you the two different ways verse 27 could be translated. It could be translated exactly as I just read it. He helped greatly those who had believed through grace. If that's what Luke was saying, then what Luke meant was that grace itself was the source of the belief. We believe through grace. Our belief is not of ourselves, Scripture says, because we're dead in our trespasses and sins. So those who believe, believe because it's been granted to us to believe, Philippians says, and because it's a gift of grace. 
So those who had believed the Lord by His grace, Apollos helped them. But it could be translated another way. We could say, and it could mean, that Apollos helped through grace those who believed. Do you see the difference? He helped through grace. The grace then being a reference not to the grace of God in salvation which brings belief, but the grace of God in our ministry that operates through our spiritual gift. The idea then would be giftedness. Apollos helped through grace, through his giftedness, those who had believed. It seems to me that that's likely the the better way to understand it, since verse 28 says what? He was powerfully refuting the Jews in public, demonstrating by the Scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Not only did he have a knowledge of the Scriptures and a humble heart, but he had a willingness to serve. He went into Corinth, and by his giftedness, his abilities, he greatly helped by his grace, that is the grace of God manifesting itself through Apollos, those who had believed. All of those Jews who had blasphemed Paul and kicked him out of the synagogue, all of those Jews whom had brought that charge against Paul before Gallio in his court, out in front of the judgment seat, all of those Jews now probably breathing a sigh of relief that Paul's gone. Got rid of that guy. Man, he caused us headaches. Man, he caused us heartaches. And onto the shore comes Apollos. And here's this staggering intellect, gifted communicator, passionate about the truth. And what does he do? Goes right into the synagogue. And the other Jewish Christians there are thinking, man, we're glad we got another one of those back in our midst because we could use the help. That's what Apollos did. In fact, Apollos powerfully refuted, Luke says. It's a double, it's an intense double compound word. Literally, when people would stand up to debate him, he would just mow them down. I don't think he was ungracious about it. I just think that they could not stand before his arguments and his reasoning. It's like Paul before him and Stephen before Paul. These men were powerful, gifted, capable, intellectual men who could stand in any forum, in any arena and prove from the Scriptures that Jesus was the Christ and people could not stand before them. He powerfully refuted. He just bowled them over with his intellect, his arguments, and his ability. He was such a help to the Corinthian believers that they started a little club in his honor. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul, writing from Ephesus, says to the Corinthians, it's reported to me from Chloe's household that there are divisions among you. And divisions like this, Paul says. One group says, I am of Apollos. He's our leader. A gifted man. Articulate. Intellectual. This guy helped us out. We belong to Apollos' group. And there were others in Corinth who said, well, not us. We're going to be true to our founder. We're of Paul. Now, Peter apparently made a, some sort of a trip into that area, either through teaching or through a letter, because there was a whole other group that said, we belong to Cephas. We're Peter's disciples. And some said, well, we're better than all of you. We are of Christ. And so Paul writes 1 Corinthians, and he rebukes them. You started these personality cults where you're following after the messenger. And some of you are saying, we belong to Apollos. And some of you, we belong to Paul. And some of those people had abandoned Paul entirely and they were just glomming on to Apollos. And when Paul rebukes them, he says nothing negative about Apollos whatsoever. In fact, everything Paul says about Apollos in the Corinthian letters and elsewhere, it was all positive. He's our fellow servant, a worker, a laborer. He chastises the Corinthians 
for having glommed on to him and missed the point entirely. He's just a servant through whom you believe. I planted, Apollos watered, God gave the increase. The planter and the waterer, they're nothing. But here was this gifted man who had come into Corinth, and the Corinthians, man, they jumped on the Apollos bandwagon. And they had the Apollos club, little fad. And Paul rebukes them. It had nothing to do with Apollos, had nothing to do with Paul, Jesus, or Peter. The problem was with the carnal Corinthians who made more of a messenger than they ever should have made. That's how powerful Apollos was. He not only had an accurate knowledge of the Scriptures, and he had a humble heart, and he had a willingness to serve. And he went into Corinth to serve and to shepherd and to pastor that church in Corinth. And he was powerful. I want you to notice a couple things about Apollos as we draw this to a close. Particularly about the man and his ministry and the kind of disciple that he was. I want you to notice, folks, how God takes our natural talents, our natural abilities, those things that we are born with before we are Christians, and then once we are saved, He has a way of sanctifying those things and using them for His kingdom and His glory. There are times when God takes articulate, knowledgeable men with natural abilities to do certain things, and then when they get saved, all of a sudden there's a new dynamic there. The Spirit of God is active in using that. That's what happened with Paul. Trained by Gamaliel, having grown up in the synagogue, he was a gifted, marvelous intellect, an ability to communicate, gifted in every way, naturally speaking. A passionate, ambitious, focused, single-minded individual. And then when he gets saved, it's as if all of a sudden the Spirit of God has all of that, and he says, watch what I'm going to do. And immediately upon getting saved, Paul went into the synagogue and began to refute and contradict and argue that Jesus was the Christ from the Scriptures. All of that natural ability now sanctified and used by the Spirit of God. That's what Apollos had. He was already educated. He was already somewhat of a humble man, apparently, because he went in and learned from Aquila and Priscilla. He was articulate and eloquent and passionate. And then once he got saved, once they explained to him the Word of God more accurately, all of a sudden that became a sword in the hand of the Spirit of God. And look out. He went to Corinth and he just he just had at her. And the gospel advanced because of him. And then there are other times that God takes these people like you and I who seem to have no natural abilities to do almost anything and he gives them a supernatural giftedness, supernatural ability that they don't have in and of themselves and he uses that as well. Paulus is really an example of the first type. You have all of these natural abilities that God sanctifies and uses for his glory. Second thing I want you to notice is who it is that impacted Apollos. It's just a couple of tent makers. Do you know who led Spurgeon to the Lord, Charles Spurgeon? You know who led Spurgeon to Christ? You don't know? Neither do I. By the way, neither did Spurgeon. He's walking down the street in a snowstorm. Under the conviction of sin, he walked into a church. And the pastor wasn't there, and so... This new guy from the congregation, elder or deacon or somebody, stood up to give the message because the pastor wasn't able to make it that morning. Just a small church, and Spurgeon was sitting there, and he read from the prophet Isaiah, Look unto me, all ye ends of the earth, and be saved. And he zeroed in on Spurgeon and said, Look unto me, all ye ends of the earth, and be saved. And he fell under such conviction, he says, It was then I looked to the Savior. Nobody knows the name of the guy that preached that sermon. You know who led Jonathan Edwards to the Lord? 
Yeah, I don't know. I read his biography. I still don't know. I don't know if anybody knows. Who led Martin Lloyd-Jones to the Lord? I read that biography. I don't know. These men are all but forgotten, friends. But you know who's not forgotten? Apollos, Spurgeon, Edwards, Lloyd-Jones. Never for one minute think that the little thing that you do in Sunday school or the little thing that you do in Awana or that little bit of truth that you share with somebody goes unnoticed and unused. It's not the case. History turns on Edwards's and Spurgeon's and Lloyd-Jones's. History turns on these men. But somebody impacted these men. Here's just this humble couple of tent makers. Opportunity to share truth, and they share truth. And they produce Apollos. Never think, oh, it's just a Sunday school kid. Oh, it's just an Awana kid. Who knows what could ever become of that guy. He's not listening. He's not interested. He doesn't care. Friends, those little kids and those little people that God brings into your life in those different venues may be the Spurgeonses and the Edwardses and the Apollos of tomorrow. And you may be the Priscilla or Aquila who has a mark on their life that changes the course of history. Father, we thank you for your word and for the encouragement that it offers us as we look at these different qualities of Apollos and what made him a powerful, effective follower of Jesus Christ. We pray, God, that you would give us the grace to be disciplined in our approach to doctrine, to think rightly about those things which are fitting for sound doctrine, to have humble, teachable hearts that we might always be willing to learn to become more effective and efficient tools in the hands of the Master, and that you would also give us the grace willingness to serve and willingness to be used in whatever capacity we can be used in knowing that you are able to do great things through our little efforts. We thank you for all of this and for our time here this morning in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.